Elijah really represents the prophets. He's the prophet of all prophets, just like Moses represents the law. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Elijah pulls off this miracle for one widow. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the ability to get together and to open up your word and to dig in. I'm really excited about tonight because this exciting stuff. God, thank you for what you've given us, that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us through this. You've given us insight into how we should act, into who you want us to be. You've given us insight into sin cycles for individuals and nations. And you've also shared with us, most importantly, your redemption plan and your redeemer. Thank you for your son, that we can be redeemed in his blood. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, 1 Kings chapter 16. Before we dig in, I think it's important to note and maybe clear up some of the confusion around the kings. So I'm going to give you an audio timeline of kind of what we went through last week. So what we've done so far in Samuel and Kings is we've seen the reign of the monarchies in Israel, starting with King Saul, then to King David, and David handed off the monarchy to his son, Solomon, goodness, I don't know why that couldn't get out of my mouth, but to King Solomon, who started out really well, uh, but then because of the nature of his relationships and the treaties he built around him, he brought in a lot of wives from foreign nations who followed foreign gods and pagan gods, and he was influenced by their worship. And he started building worship idols and temples in the land of Israel because of his wives and started leading Israel away from God. Not only was he leading Israel away from God, spiritually, economically, the extra construction, he forced Israel to pay way extra in taxes and was a a burden on the people financially and spiritually. And then 
Solomon had a son who took over after him, Rehoboam, and he was confronted with two options. To release the burden that was placed on the people that so- that uh, Solomon put on them and lower the taxes and move back toward a good relationship with God and a positive worship experience for the people in Israel, or to continue down that path and go even harder, increase the taxes and continue the pagan worship. And of course, he chose to not do what God would have wanted. And so the kingdom was stripped from him and the northern kingdom of Israel began. And the kingdom is split into two, the north and the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Rehoboam was able to keep the land of Judah in southern Israel, and then northern Israel became the kingdom of Israel. And that was given to a man named Jeroboam. The northern kingdom kind of goes like this. Jeroboam was offered a promise if he would just follow God's word and give the people a chance to worship appropriately then he would have been blessed immensely and his line would have lasted basically until the Messiah. However, he chose to go another route because he was afraid that if people worshipped God in the temple and returned to Jerusalem, that their hearts would turn back to the line of David and to Rehoboam. So he became incredibly evil. He created his own form of faith and his own religion to lead the people astray. And because of that, Ahijah the prophet told him that the kingdom would be stripped from him and his family. So when Jeroboam died, he left Nadab, his son, in charge. But the kingdom was stripped from him by a man named Baasha. And he will be confronted by a prophet named Jehu. That's the northern kingdom of what we've discovered so far. There will be more to come today. And then in the southern kingdom, Rehoboam stays stays in the line of David. Rehoboam hands off the kingdom of his son, Abijam, and then Abijam hands the kingdom off to Asa. And Asa is the king through all of the chapters we're going to read today. So the southern kingdom, that's all you've got. But the northern kingdom gets very confusing. Jeroboam, his son Nadab, has the the kingdom stripped from him and their family line, and Jeroboam's family is completely destroyed by Baasha, and then Baasha is even more evil than Jeroboam, and so Jehu tells him that the kingdom is going to be stripped from him. And what you're going to see is the sin cycle of nations, where things get to a point that God no longer beckons them to come to him, and he hands them over to their sin. And he allows them to continue down their path of sin. But then it gets to a point where God raises up a prophet to make his point and to win the hearts back of the people. So that's what we're going to see tonight. So, 1 Kings chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, to provoke me to anger in their sins. Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the prosperity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested 
with his fathers and was buried in Terza. Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed them. So what you have is Jeroboam was exceedingly evil, and judgment was pronounced on him by Ahijah. That judgment was fulfilled through Baasha, this new king in Israel. Now, Baasha is just as evil as Jeroboam and took out the former kings and committed heinous acts, and now he's being judged for that. And this is being pronounced by Jehu, the prophet. And so now Baasha's son, Elah, is reigning in Israel, and judgment has been pronounced on his house. This is what it says. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, so this means that the king of the south has been reigning for 26 years while all of this turmoil has been happening in the north. So several more kings and several more monarchs have existed in the north because politically there's significantly more turmoil up north as they try to set up a government. Judah, Elah the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terza. Now, his servant Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him. He was in Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terza. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So, a trusted military leader turned his back on Elah, and Zimri killed him in his house and took over the reign. Then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on the throne, that he killed all the house of Baasha, and he did not leave one male, neither of his relatives nor his friends. Then Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and all the sins of Elah, his son, by which they had sinned, and by which they had made Israel sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah, all he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So, Zimri is des- destroys Baasha's household. Not just him, but every member of his household and their friends. So they have no allies left in the kingdom, basically as a way to make sure that there would be no rebellion once he took the throne. But it also fulfills the prophecy that Jehu committed and stated would happen to Elah. So, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terza seven days. So he's allowed to reign. He gets one week on the throne. Just one week. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said Zimri had conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri the commander of the army over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon, and they besieged Terza. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, 
and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Zimri is the fulfillment of this prophecy by Jehu, and then he gets to reign in Israel for a week. But remember, he was only commander of half of the army. The commander of the other half is Omri, and all of the people tell him about it, and he goes and destroys Zimri while he's sitting on the throne one week later. It says, then the people of Israel were, defi- were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omni reigned. <clears throat> In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. So now you have a large portion of understanding when you get into the New Testament, what's going on. So, Baasha gets has a prophecy against him. When he dies, his son Elah is put in his place. The prophecy is fulfilled by his commander of the army, Zimri, who kills him and takes the throne for one week. Then the other commander has the people tell him about it, and he kills Zimri, and then gets into a fight with another guy named Tibni, wins, and takes the throne of Israel. Now he's the king in the northern part of Israel, over the ten tribes. Now Amri is incredibly evil. But he moves the capital of the north from Terza to Shemer, and then he renames it Samaria, which is why in the New Testament you have the, the Samaritans in the land of Samaria when Jesus goes to Samaria. That's part of the northern area of Israel where the people, because of their pagan worship over the years, starting here, and gets worse and worse after their exile, become not fully Israeli. And so they're looked down upon because they're not pure blood. Um, And they're pagan worship, and they don't have the temple, and they don't come to the temple to worship. And so the Jews looked down on them and considered them basically second-class citizens, and there was just a lot of hostility between them. And so, actually, this... This weekend, you'll meet a Samaritan woman in our journey through John. But that's how how the northern kingdom or the northern part of Israel got to be called Samaria, is through Omri. So just to give you a little insight as you're reading, this is where all of that happened. Now, after uh, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, this is verse 25, and now you're going to get some insight. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all of the ways of the son of Nebat, of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and he might, uh, that are showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. So Omri is even more evil than Jeroboam and 
Nadab and Baasha and Elah and Zimri. He's the most evil king thus far. And there's already been enough evil for God to bring down intense judgment that destroyed entire family lines. But Omri is even worse. However, God doesn't destroy his family line immediately. In fact, he's the only king who has somewhat of a legacy thus far because he ends, his, his reign or his family line ends up reigning for about four generations. And Ahab is the first generation after Omri who, who reigns. And that's, he's the only king we're going to talk about today. But he ends up having three, pre, three an, or, uh, predecessors after him that reign. And this is the first time that it happens. This is an instance of it's gone so far that God has handed them over to their wickedness. But in the midst of that, you'll see God raises up a prophet to bring the people back to the truth. This is verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. So Ahab, Omri was already the most evil king thus far. Ahab is more evil than him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of God, uh, the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, and with its youngest son, Segub. He set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So what you have is the constant progression As bad as you think it's going to get, it gets worse. Omri is the new new height of evil, and then his son exceeds that. And he marries a woman named Jezebel, who is going to be a key figure over the next couple of chapters. Because her Baal worship, Ahab really brings into Israel of Baal and Asherah, which includes a lot of prostitution of worship, like prostitution is part of the worship system and lots of disgusting sacrifice and it's just bad. All right, now Baal ends up being like the storm god. Fire and lightning is his thing. That's what they believe. And Ahab's wife is from the center of Baal worship. Okay, so this is important to understand as we move into the next two chapters. Chapter 17. Now, out of nowhere, we get the prophet. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So out of nowhere, this prophet who happens to be a central figure, and he's like the prophet, right? Elijah is the same guy who shows up at the transfiguration of Jesus, along with Moses. 
And Jesus even says straight out when people ask him about Elijah that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, but Elijah is still yet to come. Like, yes, Jesus is coming again, but so is Elijah. Like, that's how important this guy is. To understand his ministry really gives us a grasp of the whole of the Bible. He's like the prophet's prophet. Just like Moses is representative of the law, Elijah is really representative of the prophets. And so here's the guy, and he says there will be a drought. And it will last until he says that rain can happen. Uh, Now, in the book of Revelation, you'll see a reference to two witnesses. And it's widely believed that one of the two witnesses, there's almost no argument that one of the two, two witnesses will be Elijah. And part of that is because the things that the two witnesses will do will have command over the rain, which Elijah is already showing that that's part of his resume, as well as calling down fire from heaven, which you'll see pretty soon. Now, then the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and hid according to the word of the Lord. He went and stayed by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So God tells Elijah where to go, and he goes and he hangs out by this natural water source. But as the drought intensifies, the water source dries up. But while there is water there, God is providing for Elijah, not just through the brook, but birds are actually bringing him food every morning and every night. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, this is incredibly interesting. God is doing something that makes zero sense. I mean, it will make sense, and Jesus refers to this later on, but God tells him, go to the place where Jezebel is from. Go to the center of Baal worship. So God is taking Elijah the prophet away from Israel into the center of Baal worship, and then he tells him that a widow will be the one who takes care of him. So someone who has nothing in that society in the center of pagan worship is supposed to take care of a prophet of God. Like they don't have the material goods to take care of him, nor do they have the religious background to give any care what he has to say because it's in the center of Baal worship. But Elijah listens. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath and he came to the gate of the city. Indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, hospitality is incredibly important in the Middle East, even outside of Israel. So just by him asking for water, she was basically duty-bound for hospitality. And then he gets really brazen and asks for bread as well. 
In verse 12, so she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. See, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in there and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. What she's really saying is, I, I'm not capable of giving you what you need. I'm literally at my last meal. We have nothing left. The drought has killed us. I'm about to have the last meal with my son, and then we're just going to wait it out and starve until either the drought ends or we die. But Elijah says to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So, a miracle happens. She takes care of this prophet of God without having any reason to because she only has enough for one meal. Yet somehow the flour and the oil never disappear. This is kind of how I picture the way that Jesus feeds the 5,000. I think that the, the baskets just never get empty. You know, I don't think they looked like they were overflowing the whole time. But every time someone took a piece of bread or took a piece of fish, it just never went away. And that must be what it was like for her. Now, interestingly, I pointed out that Elijah really represents the prophets. He's the prophet of all prophets, just like Moses represents the law. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Elijah pulls off this miracle for one widow. And he's able to feed her for many days without the flour or the oil disappearing. But Jesus does something incredibly far beyond this magnitude in which he feeds 4,000 and 5,000. And that's only if you count the men. That doesn't count the women and children. So you're looking at thousands and thousands of people that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish. And then also he feeds another 4,000 with a little bit more food than that. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So after this miracle, the son dies because of the sickness. And so she said to Elijah, what have I done uh, what, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out, and the Lord said, O Lord my God, uh, cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times. And cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room in the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, By this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the first resurrection in the Bible. It's performed by Elijah after he stretches himself out three times over the boy's son. Now, Jesus brings a couple of people back from the dead during his ministry, and then also after three days, rises himself from the dead. And so you see this fulfillment of the law and the prophets incredibly through Christ. And interestingly, Elijah is one that we are pretty sure is also going to come back prior to Christ's return to preach the gospel before his return during the tribulation period. Chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So we know that the drought has been at least three years. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Of course, there was a drought for a really long time. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah is this guy who sees what Ahab is doing and what Jezebel are doing and that they're killing anyone who preaches the true God. And he's, he takes hold of a hundred of these, of these people and he hides them in caves and feeds them in secret underneath the nose of Ahab and Jezebel as he protects people who are trying to get God's word out to the people of Israel. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, into all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them, and to explore it, Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way. So Obadiah, who is a servant of, the, of King Ahab, they're now looking to find any way to feed the livestock so they, they don't die, so they don't have to kill them. This is a king grasping on to what wealth he still has left. And as they split up, now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is, this, is that you, my lord Elijah? And he said to him, it is. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, now have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab he could not find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. This is what goes on. As, as Obadiah and Ahab split up, Obadiah is by himself and Elijah appears to him. And he says, the time has come for me to confront Ahab. Go tell Ahab that you've seen me. 
And this is a guy who's been bold enough to, right under Ahab and Jezebel's nose, has hidden prophets of God and fed them and kept them alive and kept them secret from Ahab and Jezebel. But when Elijah says, go tell him I'm here, he won't do it. He's afraid. It's interesting that he was willing to do things in secret. He was willing to follow God and stand up for God and do the right things in secret. But when it could cost him something, he, he hesitated. But Elijah tells him, don't worry about it. As soon as you tell him I'm there, you're going to disappear. Um, which is a pretty interesting thing. Interestingly, as we move down into the book of Kings, you'll find out that a similar thing happens to Elijah and he disappears from earth without dying. Uh, And that might be the first real picture of the rapture that we get is from Elijah's ministry. This, in that this guy disappears. And secondly, in that Elijah was literally raptured from the earth. Verse 13, was it not reported to my Lord that when I... What I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. And so he's still afraid. He's not responding to Elijah because he's afraid to be public with his faith. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? I like that this is how it goes. It's very interesting to me. This He's been hunting Elijah because Elijah, as a prophet, stated that there would be a drought until he says no more until he tells he gets the message from God for there to be rain back in the land. So people are starving, the crops are dying, there's famine in the land, and he's been hunting Elijah to try to force him to bring the end to the drought. And he goes and he looks at Elijah when Elijah presents himself, and he calls Elijah the troubler of Israel, as if Elijah's the reason for all of this. He refuses to take responsibility for the fact that his evil and his sin and his leading the people away from God is the reason that judgment has come upon him. Elijah's not the problem. Elijah is just carrying out the judgment that's happening because of Ahab and Jezebel's sin and that they're causing God's people to sin. But isn't it interesting the pointing of the finger? It's very human to not want to take responsibility for our own mistakes. So verse 18, and he answered, I have, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah's response is, I'm not the one who's troubled Israel. You have. Your sin 
your Baal worship and the fact that you've caused Israel to sin and worship the Baals, it's your fault. And so here's what you're going to do, King Ahab. It's, it's brazen. Just this crazy prophet out in the wilderness, wandering around, says to the king, who's wanted to kill him, you're the problem, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to bring me all of your prophets, and it's just going to be me and them. Now, there's 850 prophets, 450 of Baal and 400 of Asherah. So Ahab sent all of the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. I I can't think of a more appropriate statement for the world we live in. Elijah looks at them and he says, "How all of the people, how long are you going to waver back and forth and be two-faced? How long are you going to say that you believe God is real, but also maintain this idol worship? If God is real, follow him, because you know that he's, he's powerful and in control. But if he's not, then go and stop pretending that he is. Stop pretending that you believe. Stop going through rituals to try to appease him. Because God is either real or he's not. What is it? So then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. We put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal, from morning, evening, till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar they had made. So, Elijah says, we each have a bull to sacrifice. You get your choice of which one is better for your God. There's 450 of you, one of me. There's two bulls, you get the choice one. All I'm asking you to do is to sacrifice it on this altar and see if your God will rain fire down on the altar. After all, he's the storm God, and there's 450 of you. You should be able to get his attention. If he's real, let's see what happens. And so they do it, and nothing happens. There's no voice, there's no fire, and then they go crazy, and they start dancing and leaping around. And it was so at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. Now, this is a really nice way of saying what Elijah said, because what really he said is, 
He said, well, if he's a god, where is he, right? He's mocking them. First of all, I like that this prophet mocks people because it makes me feel better about myself. Um, Because mocking is not beneath me. But he tells them, where's your God? Is he meditating in a very sarcastic tone? Is he busy? Is he on a journey? Which really he's saying, is he going to the bathroom? Is he defecating? Is he sleeping? Does your God need to be awakened? Does your God need to wake up? Does your God sleep? So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So they went crazy. They started cutting themselves, dancing around, trying to create some sort of action, and nothing happened. But then Elijah said to all of the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and then he, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar, the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. So he repairs an altar that was originally for the Lord, that had been destroyed and decrepit because they had forgotten to worship God. Instead, their worship has been to pagan gods and to the Baals, who have done nothing for them. And then he builds a huge ditch around it. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice in wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So there was so much water that the ditch was filled with water. The sacrifice was soaked and drenched, and it's supposed to light on fire. And Elijah is making a really clear point with this. Go ahead. Do whatever you can to make this not work. Because I know who's real. The God of Israel is real. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Israel, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and, and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and stones and dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. So a firebomb came out of the sky, lit the altar on fire, and completely consumed it so that it disappeared, including all of the water that was in the ditch around it, as these people witnessed it. And his prayer at that moment was that the heart of the people would turn back to God because of what they had seen. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So now Elijah gathers up all of the prophets with the help of the people of Israel after seeing this display, 
And he kills all of the prophets of Baal and does his best to help end false worship in Israel. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up, now look toward the sea. So he tells Ahab, Go ahead, go back to your house, go eat and drink, because rain is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And so his servant went up and looked, and there is there is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. It came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. So now after seeing a small cloud, he tells his servant to go tell Ahab he better get home quick before the rain becomes too much for him to not make it home. He's really making some pretty bold predictions, but because he's a prophet of God, he knows he count on them because this is a message from God. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So now Elijah runs away. Now, this is the cycle. Evil had gotten to a point that God gave the people over to their sin. He allowed them to continue to build altars and the kings to become even more and more evil. And then it got so bad that God raises up a prophet, not just any prophet, but Elijah. And he puts on a huge display in front of the people to show him, show them that he is God. Here's the problem. God can do amazing things in a bunch of miracles, and it can be really impressive for those who are there. But for everyone else, it's a story. You just have to take the claim that it was a witness story. And so it doesn't take long for this to wear off for the people of Israel and for them to continue down their road of false worship and paganism. And so I often hear, you know, I wish God would present himself in a way that he would be undeniable to me. But the problem is, the only person that that helps is you. And you can tell your kids and your grandkids about your experience, but it's just a story. And God has done so much better than just provide some amazing acts of, of the miraculous and the supernatural. He's given us this, this book that's testable, historical, and not only historical and testable where we find that archaeology and history matches up with it, but also prophetic. And as the future keeps unfolding in the way that the Bible says it will, it's unbelievable and hard to deny that he is the God of the universe. And he has provided us a way to understand that he is who he says he is. And he came in the flesh as Jesus, and he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And he did even more amazing things than Elijah. And he is the only way to reconcile the problem that we all have. Because we're all not that far from Ahab. It's really easy to point the finger at others and not take responsibility for our own mistakes. 
It's easy for us to not be aware of all of the sin that's in our own lives. It's easy for us to not know or to at least be honest enough to recognize that we deserve God's judgment because we are so far away from the image of him that we were created to be. And we've stained that image so badly that we deserve that judgment. But instead of the judgment, he offers us mercy through his son. And it gets predicted. And we can see the historical remnants of it so that the story is testable in every generation. And we're able to make a decision and come to terms with who he is. And we either accept or reject it. And then the judgment is our decision, whether we get it or not. And salvation is yours to be had if you just accept the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the power in the story of Elijah. And I, I thank you that you raise up people to call us back to you. That in the midst of evil and wickedness or people just falling away and not caring, being completely indifferent to who you are and the reality of your power and authority, that you raise up those of us to cry out your name and to make you known to those who need you. Help us be those types of people. Help this church be that kind of light to be a place where your word is spread and your light is seen by those who need to see and hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.